Uh, good morning. I'm Wes, uh, one of the pastors here. Uh, excited to be with you as well. We're going to do what we do each Sunday now. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, there is a Bible even under the seat in front of you. If you want to grab that and turn to our passage today in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Quick reminder as well, if you're here and English is not your first language, we do have a sermon manuscript at the back there, which you can follow along with if that's uh, helpful for you. I do stick fairly close to that, so um, that's available as well if that can be helpful. When you found that passage, if you could stand together with me and I'll read this passage for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. See Apostle Paul writing here, he says this, I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go on divisions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain. So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. That's God's word. You may be seated. We pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this passage. Spirit of God, we just ask that you would come now and illumine the preaching of your word. Empower me as I bring your word, and would you open each heart and mind and ear to receive what it is you want to accomplish through your word. Do that in whatever way you need today, Father. As I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. Well, if I were to poll everybody here in the room today, my guess is that you would all have at least some idea of who at least one of these grumpy individuals are. I tried to put as many different actors up as possible so you'd be sure to get it. Now, and, and yes, I agree 100%. It's far too early for anything Christmas, so just bear with me, please, uh, for the sake of making this point. Who, who can tell me who we're looking at here? Huh? Ebenezer Scrooge. Thank you. Uh, phew, at least I mean some of you got it. Um, Ebenezer Scrooge. What, what we know about Mr. Ebenezer Scrooge is that he is all about the money, right? Entirely profit-driven, um, concerned with nothing more than meeting the bottom line at any cost, up to and including even the well-being of his employees. Um, this is just... This is not surprising to anyone about this classic character from Dickens' novel. 
But what might be surprising to some of you anyway is to learn that for centuries, actually, that kind of ruthless, fear-based, Gordon Ramsay-esque kind of style of leadership in business, albeit, you know, kind of exaggerated with Scrooge, was actually just standard practice. It was just understood as how you run a business. I can see CEOs like watching a Christmas carol and just being like, I don't understand what the problem is. Looks like a good boss. Um, it was just sort of standard practice. In fact, if you didn't know how to put the fear of God in your employees in such a way that it would drive profits, uh, meet targets, satisfy shareholders, there's a good chance that your credibility, your, your ability to actually run a company would be called into question. You'd be like, I'm not sure you're really cut out for this. Which isn't to say that's how everybody led their companies, no, but it was certainly far more common than you'd find anymore today now where it's actually more like the CEOs and bosses and managers who are the ones who are afraid more often. And yet despite this standardized way of operating for many business leaders, there were certain anomalies or exceptions to the rule, like the Marriott family of the Marriott Hotel chain, who apparently bucked the system of the day in a way that appeared foolish to many of their competitors, and yet, as a result, led them to become even more successful than these same competitors who were working against them in that standard way. Depending, that is, if you think things like employee retention, customer satisfaction matter as much to you as profits. Although, in the end, they ended up gaining both of those things. Their secret to success, it was an employee-driven rather than a profit-driven model with the basic operating philosophy that if you treat your employees really well, they're going to treat your customers really well. And then that's going to grow your business as you create not just customer loyalty, but employee loyalty. It's a standard which, as you can easily imagine, uh, is, is actually a lot more costly than just trying to intimidate everyone. It's costly uh, financially, it's costly relationally in all those ways, but in the end, it actually has long-term benefits which far outweigh any of the costs involved. And I bring it up as we come to this perhaps maybe really well-known passage to some of you today written by the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, because we're going to dig into this more deeply as we go. Paul was operating as an apostle in the early church in an environment and circumstances very much similar to what the Marriott family were experiencing in their day and age. And also like the Marriott family, Paul was bucking the conventional wisdom of his day in a way that seemed foolish, that seemed to cause many to question his ability to lead in the church. And yet, also like the Marriott family, Paul experienced successes within his own personal formation as well as in his ministry to others in a way that was exponentially greater than if he had sort of just stepped in time with the boasting, esoteric tradition of so many others around him. What was his secret? Embracing weakness as the path to true greatness. That was Paul's secret way of doing it differently than everyone else was. Embracing weakness as the path to true greatness. And I want to look at this together with you today because while our vision and values as a church, that's something that informs and drives everything we do throughout the year, there's times like today, kind of on this kickoff Sunday, where we are heading back into a new season of life where we want to 
focus in in a more particular way on some part of that, even like take out one piece in particular and really focus on it in order to help root it more deeply in who we are as a church. So as it relates to our vision, many of you might already know, you can read on the back wall here, it's on our website or whatever, uh, our vision for our church, what we've described as our destination that we're headed towards in which we invite anyone who is interested in getting to that same destination as well to join us is this. As a people, continually being renewed by the gospel, we will be ministers of gospel renewal in our city and world in a way that brings about personal, or sorry, personal conversion, strengthened relationships, authentic community, and a flourishing society. And it's that first line in particular, as a people continually being renewed by the gospel, that I want to focus on together with you today for just a few minutes. Really zero in just on that one line, because if there was ever a secret to our success as a church of living out our vision, seeing that renewal actually take place in our city and world, I mean, that's it. That's, that's the essential secret of our success right there. Always and ever understanding ourselves as a people in process, as people who are continually in need of being renewed by the gospel. Which, like, if you're new to church, if you're new to the Christian faith, to be renewed by the gospel simply means the process by which we work alongside God over the course of our lives to live more like Jesus, to look more like Jesus did. That's what it means. It's not about being saved over and over again by Jesus. It's not about God loving us more as we look more like Jesus. It's simply about surrendering, this ongoing process of surrendering more and more of the rule and reign of our lives over to Jesus. And it's a work that none of us ever graduates from in the end, really. It's a, it's a lifelong process, but which is an essential posture. Like a, a, has to be like a defining characteristic of ourselves if we're ever going to see this vision carried out and be those ministers of gospel renewal in, in, in ways that bring about renewal in all the ways that we've defined here. But of course, just because someone hasn't graduated from a process or a program yet doesn't mean that they can't be further along down the path towards graduation than someone else. I mean, I think we see that even in our schools and universities. Someone can be further along towards graduation. And I think we'd all agree here today that Paul, an apostle to the early church, author of over a third of the New Testament, someone who here was, he says, was transported up into heaven himself. I think we'd all agree, maybe he's like a little bit further down the path towards graduation than the rest of us. Is that fair? Okay, I, I think so too. Um, he's a little bit further down the path. And yet, what's so interesting, what we're going to see as we dig into this more, and maybe you heard it already as I was reading, it, none of those amazing accomplishments, writing all these New Testament books, going to heaven itself, none of those things are what Paul saw as the things that made him great. None of those things were the things that kept him continually being formed more and more into the image of Jesus. But rather, it was through the things that he suffered that he believed that was accomplished more and more in his life. The things that made him weak, the things that limited him, those were the things that he saw that made him great, that made him strong. And so in order that we might learn from Paul's example here and find that strength to remain in this posture of humble formation always... And then see gospel renewal take place in us 
as well as in our city and world, I want to look at this passage together with you today in just two simple ways. We're going to look at the price of continual renewal and the power of continual renewal. Just those two things, the price and the power of continual renewal. So if you closed your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever, could you open that again with me? Follow along as we dig into this passage, 2 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 1. We learn more about our secret of success as a church for seeing our vision as a church, our destination reached together. Okay, so let's look first of all at the price of continual renewal. What is the price of seeing this happen? And just right off the bat, I want to just clarify by price, I don't mean in any way any kind of like payments or like earning that we do that's required in order for God to form us. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, there is a, a cost involved, but if anything, it's more of an opportunity cost than anything financial. So don't worry. So let's look at this. Look back, first of all, at this first section of the passage, verses 1 through 6. Look here. We see Paul talking about this incredible experience that he had 14 years ago where he says he was caught up or taken up into the third heaven. The third heaven, which, what does that mean? Well, it's an expression in Paul's day that they would have understood as well as what he says there in verse 4 about being taken up to paradise. Same thing. Simply means that at some point in time, 14 years ago, Paul was taken on an epic field trip to heaven itself. Now, that some of you who are in school right now, you're going to be going on all kinds of field trips this year to all kinds of different things. I think we can agree this is better. Better than whatever pumpkin patch you're going to go to or Vancouver Aquarium. Those are cool. Going to heaven, that's a better trip, right? He's being taken to heaven itself. But if you notice, he keeps talking about the way he doesn't know whether he went there in the body or apart from the body. He almost sounds like he's glitching because he keeps repeating the exact same words. But he says this thing, I don't know if I went there in the body or not. All he's saying is, I don't know if I physically was like, beamed to heaven, or if I was given like a, such a clear vision of heaven that it felt like I was there. But either way, Paul says he was taken to heaven itself, and he saw things on this trip which he's not even permitted to mention. It would be like if you have an aunt and uncle who works in the American military, he took you on a field trip to Area 51. It would be awesome. You could see all kinds of th things. can't talk about it. you got a you know, non-disclosure agreement as you leave. But I don't know if this stood out to you as well. Despite this amazing experience, I mean, he's gone to heaven and then got to come back. It's like Paul still can barely bring himself to talk about it. You notice that? He's like telling this story and he's, he's using all this language like, I know a guy who 14 years ago was this. He's, he's telling it in this weird way and you almost want to like stop him and be like, bro, we, we, we know you're talking about yourself. Why, why are you telling this story like that? We, we get it. So what's up? And the reason has a lot to do with what I mentioned when we began about this culture that Paul was living in in this time. The way that people understood in his day and age the qualifications for someone who could be a leader in the church, someone that people should listen to. Namely, people who had had or at least had claimed to have incredible, miraculous, transporting experiences with God. They'd seen incredible visions. They'd had these incredible things happen to them. Those were the people that you should listen to. Those were the people qualified to teach about God. They were called super apostles in Paul's day. And they were understood to be the ones who were the most qualified to lead and to teach others about God. And these same super apostles are now the ones who are questioning 
Paul's ability and his credentials to be an apostle. Have you ever had someone question your fit or your worthiness to be in a job or in a team or anything like that? It's a hard place to be. You feel like you've got to prove yourself to people who just, just to be there. So if you read back actually through chapters 10 and 11, this whole time Paul has actually been defending his ministry to these super apostles, trying to say, no, no, I, I actually am supposed to be here. This actually is where God has called me to be, and he's defending his ministry in all kinds of different ways. Some of it's actually quite funny as you read it, particularly if you're someone like me that enjoys sarcasm. Paul has a sharp wit to him, which I happen to appreciate. But overall, what he's getting at, if you look at verse 1 in particular, is that he's basically saying you've got, your whole system is wrong. You just, you just got it wrong. That what these super apostles saw as the credentials necessary for strength, for leadership in the church, it's actually meaningless. All your big visions and things that you say you've seen that qualify you, it actually doesn't qualify you at all. Paul's like, yeah, I've got experiences that you're claiming to have like that too, but none of that is what qualifies us to be an apostle or a leader in the church. No, for Paul, what truly distinguished someone as having the strength and the commendation of God in life had nothing to do with heavenly experiences and everything to do with embracing weakness. With embracing weakness. That's what qualifies me as an apostle. And where you see that is now in the next section of our passage where Paul starts talking about this thorn in the flesh that he's been given, what he describes as a messenger of Satan to torment him or to weaken him or limit him in some way. Now notice here, first of all, suddenly Paul's now very freely talking about his weaknesses, talking about what's going on in a way that he could barely bring himself to do about all his accomplishments and visions. Secondly, then notice in verse 9, Paul says that this suffering, this weakness that he's experienced as a result of his thorn is the secret to the power of Christ resting on him. That's the secret. The weakness he experienced from that is what caused the power of Christ to rest on him. Now, obviously, this was a very different set of qualifications and criteria than most in Paul's day would have understood as like, that's what makes somebody a leader. That's what makes somebody someone we should follow. In fact, as one commentator put it well, he said, Paul's opponents criticized his claim to apostleship on the grounds of his weaknesses and probably regarded many of his persecutions and insults that he experienced as inconsistent with his claim to be an apostle. They're like, dude, look at how many times you've been in prison. Look how many times you've been beaten and whipped. You might not be in the right line of work. I don't know if this is where you should be right now. He goes on, but by setting out the divine principle of power made visible through weakness. Paul at once defended his claim to apostleship and neutralized the criticism of his opponents. But again, as it relates to the price of operating in this power and then continually being renewed for Paul, what we see is that rather than heavenly mountaintop experiences, kind of a way of earning your spiritual cred with people, it involved embracing things that left him feeling anything but strong, anything but able, things like suffering, hardships, persecutions, insults, which is something really important to kind of just pause and notice for a minute. I want to just sit in this for a minute because depending on how you react to what Paul is saying here, this divine principle that he's laying down, it reveals 
whether you understand and have embraced Paul's divine principle of how we are gained strength through weakness, or if you actually have the exact same opinion as, Paul, of Paul, as Paul's opponents, if you hold the same view as them, that it's the absence of hardship, it's the absence of trials that makes someone strong and qualified for ministry as a voice to be followed and listened to. How we respond to this shows what we really believe about what Paul is saying. Because for many of us, particularly if you grew up in the church, you've been a Christian for a long time, we agree with Paul's kind of divine principle on paper. You know, we'll say, yes, right, exactly. I, I, when I am weak, I'm strong. Amen, Paul. And we put that on t-shirts and cups and all kinds of things to remind ourselves of that truth. Um, until, until we're the ones who are suffering. Until we're the ones who are weak, until we're the ones dealing with chronic pain, dealing with debilitating depression and anxiety, spiritual dryness, persecution ongoing from others, until we experience that, and then all of a sudden, we are very much like Paul in verse 8 there. We are pleading with God to take away these things, to remove these thorns, rather than seeing them as any kind of means that make us strong and which make us formed more and more in Christ and his power dwelling on us. We're just like, get, get us out of here. Get us, get us away from these things. And I say our thorns, they're not to try to take Paul's particular circumstances and apply them to us simplistically or allegorically, but because, as many have pointed out over the years, did you notice that at no time in this passage does Paul define what his thorn is? He never says what exactly this thing that he was pleading with God to have removed was. All kinds of speculation through the years of what that thing was, but he never says, and as many have pointed out, that's very likely intentional. This is actually really a gift of Paul that he keeps the specific identity of this thorn hidden. As the late, great Tim Keller put it so well, he said, how wise and wonderful of Paul not to tell us as it allows all of us now to identify with him. If he had told us what the thorn was, we'd say, well, that's not me. But since he doesn't tell us what it is, it means everyone can read themselves in here. So that's what I want to invite you to do right now. Read yourself in here. We're supposed to. Read yourself in here and think about your life and your experiences up until now and ask yourself the question. Don't have to say it out loud, but what would you say, as you think about your own life, is your thorn right now? The thing that leads you to constantly feeling weak, hopeless, frustrated, that you're just desperate for God to remove. What's that thing where you feel like, man, if only God would remove this, I could. What's your thorn? Notice, and, and I feel like this is one of the true gifts of this passage to us already, is that at no time either does Paul present our suffering and weakness produced by our thorns as something easy to bear. He doesn't just say, look, I can do it. Why not you? But I think sometimes, and you tell me if, if I'm wrong here later, um, sometimes I think we think it is easy for Paul, don't we? Because of the way he writes here. We get confused because we read this passage, and I don't think we understand it as I really came to understand it better this week as a condensed narrative 
which is really just taking a much longer story and like narrowing it down to just a few sentences. I think that's what Paul's actually doing here in this passage. Because you hear Paul, he's talking about this thorn and how he's pleading with God to take it away. And then all of a sudden, he's saying, oh, and now, now I'm boasting and delighting in weaknesses. And we're just like, what? What happened? And we just conclude, well, I guess it's just easy for Paul. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I guess I, I can't do it like him. Not realizing that this was very likely a lifetime of work in order to gain this perspective that he now has on suffering. For don't forget, like just, just two verses earlier, Paul was pleading with God to get rid of this thorn. He wasn't delighting in anything. So clearly there's a longer story that's being depicted in just a few sentences. And in fact, that, that was the real shift for me this week. I don't know if I've ever read this passage that same way. For me, I always read it as, Paul's got this thorn. It's hard. He prays three times. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul just says, okay, got it. And gets up and starts going. Like we read it that way, don't we? And we just think, well, shoot, I can't do that. I guess I'm not like Paul. But now... Here's what I want to invite you to wonder with me. I wonder if Paul isn't presenting here an ongoing process that actually happened over many years. That these three times he pleaded with God aren't actually three separate occasions over the course of his life where Paul was working and struggling underneath his thorn until things just got too hard. He couldn't bear it anymore. He came to God, asked for God to remove his thorn. God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Until... He goes off, and then weeks, months, years later, it gets really hard again. He begins to be crushed by it again, and he goes back to God again, pleads with God to remove his thorn. God says no. So this is a training process that takes place over time, not just sitting down for an afternoon of prayer, and then bam, he's got it. This is something that took place over a long time with Paul, in at least, at least three different times that he mentions. I don't know if that's, if that's exactly, but it sure seems like what Paul is presenting here. And if it is, man, isn't that so much more encouraging and freeing to realize? Like, that's actually far more encouraging for me as I wrestle and struggle with my own thorns. Because what that would mean then is what Paul goes on to describe in verses 9 and 10 here. Look, boasting in weaknesses, delighting in hardships. That wasn't a conclusion that he reached in this afternoon of prayer. It was a result of years of being formed in this process to the place where he gets to the place where now he understands it differently and he's no longer asking for the thorn to be removed. I don't know about you, but understanding the passage that way completely reshapes the way that I understand it and the way that I understand the thorns in my own life and what it looks like to rely on God's grace in the midst of my own trials, especially when God's purposes for those thorns are greater than my need and ask to have it removed from me. I know it's a price at the end of the day that still needs to be paid. I mean, I know that, right? As followers of Jesus, being formed more and more into the image of Jesus is not optional. It's not an optional kind of AP program if you feel like it. It's, it's required. It's required for all of us. But if I have to reach Paul's perspective on suffering in an afternoon of prayer, I don't think that's a price that any of us could pay. But if I know that this is a process... This is a realization that I can come to over time and that God is gracious and compassionate with me as I get there. Suddenly that feels like a cost that's much more able to be paid. 
Okay, so that's the price of continual renewal. Again, not a price in any kind of like payment that we make to see renewal take place, but experiences that from time to time we will have to endure in order to be more renewed, to be more formed into the image of Christ and see his power rest on us. Last thing I want to look at together with you is the power of continual renewal. The power of continual renewal. And here is where we're going to see the answer to the question, why would anyone want to do this? <laughs> I mean, why would you choose to take this on and pay this price at the end of the day? I mean, being continually renewed, that sounds nice. It sounds like a good thing, I guess. But not if it means enduring suffering. Not if it means thorns. Why would anyone choose that? I would just come to kind of like, sounds nice, but I think I'm all good for now, thanks. Don't really want to do that. So why would we want to do this? And, and no question, for many followers of Jesus, myself included, that's exactly how we're tempted to respond in the face of suffering, in the face of hardships, because we have not yet been trained through experience to see the superior benefit that comes from continually being formed. Uh, we, we don't know what those benefits are yet because we haven't experienced them by enduring thorns with God's enabling grace. And so we push them away. We pass on the benefits of being continually renewed with the idea that it's, it's safer. It's safer in here where I don't have to suffer in any way, shape, or form. That's, that's the better way to go, even if it means I kind of stay stuck where I am spiritually. Problem with that is it's a bit like avoiding joining a sports team or meeting a new group of friends or giving up surrendering the joys of singleness for the life of marriage or giving up the joys of marriage for the life of singleness. In any one of these things, you can do it, and I suppose you could avoid certain hardships by making that choice. You could say, I'm not going to enter into that, and I won't have to suffer those things. And it's true, you don't. And yet, what so many people have revealed again and again is that the benefits they gained from entering into those opportunities, from trying, far outweighed any of the costs that, yes, absolutely go along with participating in that. Simple example is children. Children, sometimes you think, oh, I, you know, I, I don't want to do the kid thing because that's a lot of effort, a lot of responsibility. And you do avoid that by not doing that. And yet, you also miss out on a lot of amazing benefits by having kids. And, and the opposite is true. All kinds of different things we miss out on by not entering the opportunities that we could experience but we just don't want to suffer the consequences of it. So as we think about this, as we think about the price of paying this price of being continually renewed, what are the benefits? Like what makes this worthwhile to do? Well, I think there's a lot that we could actually point out here about different benefits that we experience, but the one that I want to focus on in particular today is what Paul describes there again in verse 9 as the power of Christ resting on him. I think that's one of the primary benefits of paying the price of being continually renewed. Which in one sense you might say, is he talking about power as in like God giving me the strength to do it? Like enabling grace to be able to endure the suffering? I think that's part of it. But particularly when you look at everything Paul goes on to say about how he now views weaknesses and sufferings and hardships in life, I wonder if what Paul doesn't have in mind instead is the power of perspective. What he gains by being continually formed is the power of a new perspective. Because if you think about it, Paul had one perspective uh, on his suffering. And when he had that one perspective, all he could think about was pleading with God to have the thorn removed. But as he learned over time how to rest 
in the sufficiency of God's grace in the midst of his trial. And the way God's power was displayed with greater and greater glory through his weaknesses, all of a sudden, his perspective over time is now one where he's boasting about his weaknesses. He's boasting and delighting in his hardships, not enjoying them. Okay, this is not Paul celebrating and seeking out hardships. and That's not what's going on here. This is not... Paul's sitting down with his buddies, like maybe some of you did when you were kids, with like hockey cards. And like, oh yeah, which one did you get? Oh, I got imprisonment. Oh yeah, what did you get? I got beatings with rods. Like, he's not celebrating it like that. The hardships are things that come and that he's enduring, but it's a different perspective. He's delighting in them in the sense that he has a new perspective on it. Because the experience of suffering and hardship, if you think about the world that we live in, that's universal, right? Every single one of us, follower of Jesus or not, we all experience suffering and hardships in our lives. And yet, very often what makes suffering and hardships feel so unbearable most of the time is not only the suffering itself, but what you believe about it. You notice that? The suffering is hard enough, but what you believe about it can make it feel unbearable. I think that's what Paul is pointing at or hinting at there in verse 7. Look here when he refers to this thorn that he's been pleading for God to remove as a messenger of Satan. And he's not saying that this is Satan himself attacking him, that the thorn is from Satan, because it's meant to keep him from becoming conceited, right? Satan doesn't want that from him. So it's not from him, but I think he's talking about the way the devil will very often take a thorn that God has given and attach a different message to it, to try and make you believe something different about it. So Paul has been given this thorn in order that he won't become conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. Satan attaches a message to the thorn like, you deserve this. Look at how you've lived your life. God is punishing you. Or, you don't deserve this. God is unjust. God has abandoned you. All these different messages he tries to attach to the thorn in order to make him believe something different about his suffering than God wants him to believe. But to be given this divine perspective on suffering, to see the way in which the trials of life that make us feel so weak, that make us feel so discouraged at times, they're being used by God to shape and mold us more and more into His image. And that's an absolute game changer when it comes to what you believe about your suffering. And I think that's truly what Paul means there in verse 9 about the power of Christ resting on him. He's saying, I now have a different perspective on my suffering than I had before. Which means the question for you and me today to consider in light of this is not will we suffer at times in our lives, but when we suffer, whose perspective will you believe? When it comes, when you suffer, which perspective will you take? Will you look at God's divine perspective or strive to look at his perspective of your thorn to understand the the circumstances which are making you feel so weak are first of all in no way a limitation to God for his ability to work. Our weakness is not a limitation to him. And that they may be the very means by which he is shaping you to live and to look more like him. Will you believe that perspective? Will you seek and strive to understand, okay, God, what are you doing through this? How are you making me more like you? Or will you listen to the messages the devil so often tries to attach to our thorns? which either limit their effectiveness in your formation or halt it entirely. 
Because no, the perspective you choose to take won't change the reality of what God's seeking to accomplish in your life through that thorn, but it'll absolutely change your experience of it. It'll change your experience of suffering along with your willingness to pay the price of being continually formed to the point where we could actually be like pleading with God for removal of the very tool that he's seeking to use to shape us to be more like him. Okay, so, so this was Paul's perspective. Paul is showing us what it looks like in his life to be continually formed by the gospel. A kind of insider look into one of the many learning points in his life as having now gained this divine perspective on suffering, he, he bucks the system of his day, the wisdom of his day, and he learns to embrace his weaknesses, whatever they are, in order to experience God's power working in and through him. But I don't know. I, I don't know how this is hitting you as I'm talking about this. Maybe you hear all this at the end of the day, and you're just like, I mean, that's great. I mean, good for Paul. It's a good story. I'm glad that worked out for him like that. But I don't know about this idea of never graduating. I know some of you like students right now, that sounds horrific to you. You're like, never graduating? What? That's what I feel like all the time. I don't, I don't want to actually experience that, to have to like live a lifetime of continual learning. I don't, I don't understand. I'm not sure if that really sounds that great. I mean, why can't God make it so that we can see the good work that he began in us come to completion so that we'll be able to enjoy all he created us to be? Why can't he do that? To which I'd want to respond by saying, um, he, he has. It's called heaven. Uh, he has created a space where you can enjoy all the fullness of what he's created you to be, and not just for like whatever, 80, 90 years that we get, but for all eternity. He has created that space. I think that's the problem of what makes our experience of suffering so hard in this life is we, is we are expecting heaven to be now not realizing that that's not where we're at in the journey. That was last year's message. <laughs> but actually, beyond that, actually, I think there's, there's, there's a lot of just everyday, everyday benefits for us both individually as well as a church to, to actually enter into, entering into this, to trying to be continually formed and renewed by the gospel in our lives. And I want to leave you with these, just a couple of them in closing. To begin... Acknowledging that we are continually being formed keeps us reliant. It keeps us reliant on God, which maybe doesn't sound like a great thing until you remember you were designed, you were created for relationship with God. That's what you were designed for. So anything that is going to press you, push you, encourage you back towards reaching out to Him, to being with Him, your source of life and hope and joy and rescue, that's a good thing. It's a good thing that He wants to use this process to keep us reliant on him as we understand ourselves as being a people in process. Secondly, being continually formed keeps us learning. Keeps us learning, which any life coach will tell you is essential both for our brain health as well as just maintaining a posture of humility where you continue to ask questions and be curious in life instead of walking around like an expert and know-it-all. Like We've all encountered people like that. And, and just think about that even just for our mission as a church. What does that look like to approach someone as the expert? Here, let me show you how it is instead of being curious and asking questions. This keeps us in a posture and understanding of ourselves of I'm constantly learning. There's more I need to know. There's more I need to grow in. 
Lastly, along with being a lifelong learner, acknowledging that we're continually being formed also keeps us, or at least it should keep us, gracious. Gracious with ourselves when we fail to look and love and live as much like Jesus as we had hoped to, and gracious with others when they inevitably fail to do the same. We can say, it's okay. I get it. We're still in process. We're on the way. How can I encourage you along the way? Benefits, honestly, are are endless to maintaining this posture, but hopefully what you're beginning to see already, just from these few examples, is that understanding ourselves as continually being formed by the gospel, Embracing our weakness is you, like a continual need for God's grace is an essential prerequisite for being ministers of gospel renewal in our city and world. This is the secret of our success to see the vision of our church lived out. Because if you think about it, we'll never be able to offer to others what we have not both experienced ourselves and continue to have need of ourselves. We need both of those things. And when we have it, I think we actually have a chance to really live out this vision and see this renewal take place. Amen. God help us to do it.